morning. Good to see you all here bright and early. I am uh, David Williams. I am a church planning resident here at Park Cities. And uh, quite a number of you I've gotten to know. Uh, but there's many of you who I have not had the pleasure of getting to know. And so, um, if you're, if, as your schedule allows and, and as you see me, uh, let's put something on the calendar. I'd love to sit down and get some coffee and, and, and hear your story and, and tell you mine and, and we can bless the Lord and what he's done in our lives. And so uh, consider this my, an open invitation. I'd love to meet with, with any and, and all of you. We could get something on the calendar uh, as, as we go. We've got a lengthy passage this morning. I'm not going to go through all of it, but let's jump right into the Word. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord... They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. The people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land rested forty years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love for our good. One of the cycles that frustratingly repeats itself throughout this book are the people's lapse into sin. The problem is that judges died and what always followed their death was a relapse of the people into their prior sin. Thus a recurring theme that we shall examine in this passage under both judges, Othniel and Ehud that of decline, defeat, and deliverance. 
as we look at our first judge, Othniel, let us examine the context which precipitated his judgeship. Decline is never overnight. It always starts very subtly, making compromises and peace treaties with the things that God has told us to absolutely destroy. We see the decline in this passage actually start just a few verses prior, verses 5 and 6. It reads, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now, this is an important citation. All of these tribes mentioned by name, Moses tells the people explicitly that they were not to attempt to live peaceably among them. Deuteronomy 20, verses 17 and 18 reads, But you shall devote them to complete destruction. Listen to this. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So not only were they not allowed to peaceably coexist with them, but we find that they covenanted with them through marriage. Moses also strictly forbade this. Deuteronomy 7 reads, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, and thou shalt not make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For it would turn away thy child from me, and they shall serve false gods. Not only did they coexist in covenant with them, but they disobeyed the Lord by not destroying their idols and their false gods. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 5, But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Friends, in just a few short years, by the time we get to this passage, which we've read in Judges, all of what God has forbidden has come to pass. Israel is in full violation of their covenant with the Lord. Now, that's just providing some context. This leads us to the first heading, the decline. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. What we've just read in verse 7 is not how decline starts, but how it ends. And how the decline always ends is in a corruption of worship. The Lord is not worshipped as the Lord. 
the vain idols of the people are not only tolerated, but given place alongside the true and living God. And this is much more subtle than we think. It's not that the Israelites completely abandoned the Lord. It's that they included Canaanite worship along with their worship of God. A religious pluralism. Where we read that they forgot the Lord does not mean that they were no longer aware of him, but rather they became lukewarm toward him, disregarded his word and how he was to be worshipped. He was not worshipped in the manner in which he had prescribed. He was not obeyed as he said he was to be. They were not to live peaceably with the inhabitants of the land. And there was a reason they were not to, because this is exactly what it would lead to. It all started with becoming comfortable with their enemy. Then after they had grown tolerant of the things that they should not, this led to a compromise, in this case intermarriage. And at the last, it led to a complete corruption of their worship. John Calvin, in The Necessity for Reforming Worship, writes, God, in many passages, forbids any new worship unsanctioned by his word, since he declares that he is grievously offended with the presumption which invents such worship and threatens it with severe punishment. Friends, let us not deceive ourselves. The world would want nothing more than our approval common ground, so to speak. Once we seek allegiances based upon coexistence, as the Israelites did, then they will seek our approval for their sin and then the celebration of their sin along with them, like it's a good thing. They will position our worship fidelity against their sensibilities and their acceptance. And we see this playing out before us today. Brian Chapel met with the elders to discuss these issues last night. Friends, we're not free to reimagine what our obedience to God looks like. We're not free to innovate ways in how he is to be worshipped, especially to suit the lost. Our obligation is fidelity to him, and how he has revealed in his word how he is to be worshipped. Once we start compromising on this, there's only going to be one ultimate outcome. And this is the next heading, defeat. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. The people had grown lax with their enemies. They had come into a good and a comfortable place, and they figured that they could just cohabitate with them. But what they did not know is that their enemy would never make a peace treaty with them. They could not. Look at the name of the king of Mesopotamia. It's very telling. 
His name is Kushan Rishatham. Translated, roughly, this means the king of double wickedness or the dark prince of wickedness. Now, that's not the name his mother gave him. It was like an Ivan the Terrible, a name meant to intimidate enemies. But you see, friends, what happened was that this was not just punitive correction by the Lord. It wasn't, the, it wasn't that the Lord was against his people. They were still his people. He was still their God. What it says is that he sold them. He gave them over. Effectively, you want to make peace treaties with these people? You think these people are your friends? Well, let me show you what they think of you. Further, what we see is that not that Kushan Rishatham orchestrated all of this, but what he did was he took advantage of Israel's compromised state and he enslaved them. That's just how the prince of darkness operates. It starts with compromise and it ends in bondage. This is how Adam and Eve fell. Satan did not come and overpower them, but rather he made an appeal to their pride and the, the pleasantness of the fruit. See, friends, the dominion of Satan is unrestrained disobedience, living out your own carnal desires. Sin is always bondage. It's never liberating. It will never deliver what it promises. The defeat of the dark prince of wickedness over God's people was not direct. That is, he did not mount up a, an onslaught through a mighty army and subdue Israel. The dark prince of wickedness was given power by the people of God in their disobedience. This echoes our own experience today. Hear me. The power of Satan is in the power of sin. The power of sin is in the flesh. So to be under the oppression of the devil is not to be possessed of him, but to be in disobedience and walking in your own carnal desires. So let us not fool ourselves into thinking like the Israelites did, that we can live peaceably with our sworn enemy, that we can forget God and go on about our lives. Compromise is the sin that leads to the greater sin. We get comfortable in our sin, in our disobedience, and in such a way God's people are brought under bondage of the prince of double wickedness of this world. This leads us to our next heading, deliverance. Verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. 
It says that when the people of God cried out to him, he sent a deliverer. Now notice with me the language of the text. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. This is a telling statement. Old Testament scholar John Curit notes that there was a difference in the scripture between crying out to the Lord in repentance and just crying out to the Lord. Whenever the people of God cried out in repentance, the text will say so. But that's not the case here. They cried out to God out of distress. It was the, God, if you get me out of this type of cry. There was no burden for their sin. There was no repentance. They just wanted out of their current distress. And God, who is merciful, delivers them. But because they only wanted out of their immediate distress, he's going to have to do it again and again and again and again. And this is the pattern throughout the Old Testament. And through this, we are introduced to the first judge of Israel, Othniel, a Kenite a relative and son-in-law of Caleb. Now, Othniel, the first judge, is the high watermark of the judges in the judges' period in the history of Israel. After Othniel, what we begin to see in one fashion or another is a steady decline in the judges. We see a, 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 a short diminishing from one judge to the next, all the way down to the last judge, Samson. Oddly, Othniel was not strictly descended from Abraham. Othniel was a Kenite. They were a nomadic Canaanite tribe that was ultimately folded into the tribe of Judah. You remember, the Kenites were descended from Moses' father-in-law. So Othniel was engrafted into Judah. What we have here is beautiful, wonderful, biblical imagery. Othniel means God's lion or the lion of God. He was the lion of God from the tribe of Judah who defeated the dark prince of wickedness. In Othniel, what we see is how the dark prince of wickedness would seek to take advantage of God's people in a weakened state of compromise, bring us into subjection. But the Lord raised up a deliverer, a true champion, a true judge, a true savior who will deliver us. In Othniel, we're pointed to the work of the Lord Jesus, the true lion of the tribe of Judah who saves his people. This leads us to our next judge, Ehud. He is somewhat of an unlikely judge, but he perhaps has the most colorful story of all the judges. The decline. Eventually, Othniel dies. Forty years passes and a new generation of Israelites have come upon the scene but the memory of the previous generation's sin and bondage haven't stuck. Seemingly evaporates over time. 
The word reads that they did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is, they repeated the same sin as their fathers, making compromises. Ultimately, their worship was corrupted, giving their enemies a stronghold. The defeat. The word says that God raised up Eglon, king of Moab, who together with the Ammonites and the Amalekites went and fought against Israel and subdued it, taking control of the capital city, Jericho. Where they served Cushan Rishathaim eight years, we see the period of servitude getting longer. It reads they served Eglon for 18 years. The consequences of disobedience are becoming more and more severe. Friends, unlike the, the children of Israel, we can never allow ourselves to forget the pain of sin. We should always keep it fresh in our minds, the pain we experienced as a result of our own bondage. When we keep it fresh in our minds, it will continually drive us to the Lord. It will motivate us to keep our lives holy. For the moment that we forget, we allow ourselves to become dull to it, then surely we are headed back again. This forgetting of the bondage of the last generation has led the current generation to wander from their God and repeat the same sin, provoking the Lord in like manner. Being true to the cycle, their compromise has led to defeat. But let us pay particular attention at whose hands the defeat came through. Scripture says that Eglon, the king of Moab, was in confederacy with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Before the people's enemy was the dark prince of wickedness, no less their sworn and avowed enemy, but both the Moabites and the Ammonites were descended from the incestuous relationship Lot had with his two daughters. Though we don't read of any prior conflict or hostility between these people, there was a history between them that was less than amicable. Due to the unclean nature through which they were descended, Moabites and Ammonites were forbidden any part with God's people. Deuteronomy 23 reads, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were not beyond redemption, for we read that it's exactly 400 years after Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 23 that Ruth, a Moabitess, and David's grandmother 
was folded into the covenant community. It was simply that Moabites and Ammonites were unclean. In this, we can say that the Moabites and the Ammonites serve as a type of the world. They were outside of the covenant. They were unclean, but they were not beyond redemption. Because they were outside of the covenant and unclean, they hated God and they hated his people. Jesus puts it like this in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Did you notice that it was God who strengthened Eglon's hand, not the dark prince of wickedness? The prince of darkness was defeated at this point. But the Lord was behind all this. He gave his people over to their own desires so that they would know the world is nothing to be played with. The Westminster Confession frames it like this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptation and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support unto himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Perhaps in this we see the greatest compromise facing the church today. Allowing the world to determine what we should find acceptable. Just as the Moabites and the Ammonites held a grudge for being excluded from the covenant community, there are many today deemed unclean by sin who would attempt to define to the church what should and should not be acceptable. But as God's people, we are not the judge of God's word. We are bound to the word in obedience and to what it says. If the word says such and such a sin makes one unclean before the Lord, unfit for ministry or inclusion in the covenant community, who are we to say otherwise? Who is the world to say otherwise? Those outside of the covenant will always hate the people of the covenant. It's inevitable. Make no mistake about it, the world is not your friend. And this exclusion from the covenant, this playing by two different sets of rules, is what feeds the hostility between us. Verse 13 reads that along with Eglon's confederacy with the Ammonites, he made league with the Amalekites as well to subjugate Israel. Now, pay close attention here. The Amalekites were a particularly vile and detestable people. We read in Exodus 17 that as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, the Amalekites came and fought them. 
So detestable was this act that the Lord swore that he would utterly annihilate them. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18 recounts, Remember what Amalek did to you on the ways you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So get this picture. Israel is leaving Egypt, a long caravan, probably miles long, the strongest in the front, with the elderly, the weak, probably those of reduced mental capacity, certainly women who were pregnant, just given birth, all in the rear. They were weak, they were weary, they're vulnerable. At their most exposed and unprotected, they were attacked by the, Mal the Amalekites. Now, they didn't attack head on. They didn't go head to head against the strongest. But they attacked them in the rear. The elderly, the infirm, the weak. Years later, under Saul, we read in 1 Samuel 15, where the Lord said it was time for the Amalekites to pay the piper. Everyone and everything from the youngest to the oldest, even the livestock, were to be completely destroyed. God had pronounced their end. They were beyond redemption and wholly devoted to destruction. They were and would always be the enemy of God, the enemy of God's work and the enemy of God's people. Friends, what the Amalekites typify in this passage is the flesh, the old, carnal, unregenerate nature. It will always be at war with the spirit. It attacks you at your weakest. God has ordained its end. Paul writes in Galatians 6, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. The flesh and the spirit will always be at variance. Those of the flesh will always persecute those of the spirit. Even within ourselves, we have two natures at war with each other. Friends, we cannot make peace treaties with our flesh. It's out to ruin us, to obscure the work of God with us, to take advantage of us in our weakness and to attempt to nullify the grace of God in us, leaving us in bondage. How many do we know? who made peace treaties with the flesh only for it to be their undoing. How many ministries shipwreck? How many marriages on the rocks because the flesh was not mortified, but rather it was entertained long enough to where it became a stronghold in their lives, leaving them spiritually paralyzed. If you recall, Saul, who was commanded to wipe out the Amalekites, he spared the best. He did so to his own undoing. 
as it was at the hand of an Amalekite that he was killed. John Owen, in his work Overcoming Sin and Temptation, writes, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let me just speak heart to heart here, brothers. If you're dealing with something, get with a pastor, get with a ministry leader, get with a brother, get a prayer partner. It's not worth it. We're all fighting the same battles. Nobody's fighting something so unique and so unusual that nobody can relate. We're at different phases in the battle, but we're all fighting the same battle. This leads us to our next topic, the deliverance. As I said earlier, Ehud is an unlikely deliverer. The text reads that he was the odd left-handed Benjamite, and scholars have gone back and forth as to whether he was naturally left-handed or perhaps the text highlights this because his right hand was crippled. We know that for Benjamites, the warrior clan, many were attuned with using the left hand as well as the right. But that the text seems to go out of its way to let us know this, lead me to think that he was indeed crippled in his right hand. We read where Ehud goes to Jericho, the city of Palms that Eglon had captured, to pay tribute to Eglon. After paying tribute, he seems to leave, but he turns back at Gilgal, presumably to ensure the safety of those who had gone with him. Eglon has another agenda. He gets back to Jericho, gets Eglon alone, tells him that he has a message from God. Now, if you all were a group of middle schoolers, I would go into all the gory details of this story. This is something out of an Indiana Jones movie. John LeClaire novel. Cloak and dagger in the true sense. But I assume that you all are familiar with the details, so for time's sake, I won't go into it. Uh, in closing, let us glean from this word, let us glean from the deep imagery of this passage and see how it lifts our gaze to Christ. First, we see a picture of God's enemies, Satan, typified by the dark prince of wickedness, Kushan Rishathaim. We see the world, or those outside of the covenant, typified by the Moabites and the Ammonites. We see those of the flesh, that which is beyond redemption seen in the Amalekites. And we see how all three of those work together in unity to bring God's people into bondage. It's an unholy trinity. The flesh, the world, and the devil working in concert against God's people. We further see that there is no peaceful coexistence we can maintain with our enemies. Either we will dominate them or they will dominate us. There is no middle ground. Making peace with our sworn enemies is not possible. 
This battle will continue until either we die or Christ returns. Until then, unlike Israel, we don't do battle against the flesh in the flesh. We battle the flesh in the spirit. Sin is not something outside of us, it's something inside of us. And we avail ourselves to the means of grace, and through them we crucify our sinful natures, leaving nothing for our enemy to appeal to. Most important, what we have read frames how we are to see the work of Christ and the church in the earth. Osleon was a type of Christ figure, a judge of noble character, a lion of God from the tribe of Judah who defeated the prince of darkness of this world. In Ehud, we see a type of church crippled with the fallen effects of sin, yet still called and empowered to deal with the world and the flesh. We don't have to fight the devil. He's already a defeated foe. The weakness of Othniel and Ehud is that when they died, their administration died, leaving the people to their own devices again until God had to raise up yet another deliverer. But in Christ, we have a greater judge. We have a true judge who administers God's rule, defending us from our enemies continually, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, by the power of an endless life. We have a judge who lives forever who has once and for all defeated our enemies, the prince of darkness, the world, the flesh, and his victory is accounted to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have defeated our enemies, that you have subjugated all of our foes, that we don't have to repeat the same cycle over and over and over again. Father, we can walk in that liberty to, to obey you, to please you, to do those things that are pleasing unto you. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.